Welcome to Cities Unmasked, the U of T School of Cities sponsored podcast about the ways that COVID-19 has highlighted and deepened the contours of urban inequality while amplifying the need for an actualizing tangible action. For each episode in this limited series, we will explore a different lens of cities of inequality in conversation with Lubna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Ali Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. This pandemic is just showing us that we've always had the resources and the means to help the communities that are needing the help, you know? It's just who do we prioritize and who do we care about? Recognizing what your community needs and taking it upon yourself in a legal way to, um, you know, transform the space and to make it your own and to take your claim on it. People who have like resource constraints be inadvertently excluded out of green spaces because they recognize that if, if they get sick, they don't have that kind of like access to healthcare. Why is that money going to one big park in an affluent area instead of, you know, in the entire park system? So who are these parks for and and what kind of residents are being prioritized? Hi, everyone. It's Lubna here today, and I'll be leading the discussion on the image in the city as it concerns tourism and the complex relationships between travelers, service workers and local governments. So under the umbrella of city planning, the possibilities are endless. Cities inspire the way we live, move, think, and carry in our day-to-day lives, where 80% of the world's population lives in a major city today. Nathan Coco wrote a compelling piece titled, How Tourism Changed Bali. The Indonesian island reconsiders development at any cost, where he says the following, While parts of Bali remain Balinese, many parts of the island have become something else entirely. The all-nightclubs, bars, and pizza joints of Kuta, full of drunken Australians and Europeans visiting on cheap budget flights, resemble the Mediterranean nightlife destination of Ibiza. Kangu, a popular surf spot with brunch restaurants, cafes, and shops, is more akin to the beaches of Southern California or Australia's Byron Bay. And Ubud, famous for its yoga studios, meditation centers, and therapeutic massage parlors, has a similar vibe to Rishikesh or Dharamshala in India. What's more, the exquisite resorts of Nusa Dua, with their own private golf courses and manicured beaches, echo the French Riviera or Cancun. Bali is an island that is a little over 2,000 square miles and which was named TripAdvisor's top global destination in 2017, relies heavily on tourism for 80% of the city's income. For context, imagine if almost 7 million people visited Delaware each year. This has made it one of Indonesia's richest islands where the per capita income is nearly three times that of its neighboring province, Nusa Tenggara Barat. As such, it is expected that tourism-related development and infrastructure are a welcomed economic opportunity, but at the cost of what? So, how synonymous is this with the reframing of modern-day slavery? Who serves you rum and cokes and attends to your basic needs on the Caribbean beaches you vacation at? Or gives you massages for ridiculously low prices at the beaches in Bali, let alone in and around Southeast Asia, which has become a travel hotspot of sorts? How do these transactional relationships mimic the riptide effects of systemic racism rampant in city branding today? Is there a potential benefit that outweighs this cost of marginalization, or does this cycle of inequality continue to repeat itself? The idea of city marketing to city branding and how this develops a city's image is one that is crucial to the understanding of this dichotomy between the image and the city, as explained by Michael Kavaratsis. In his paper titled From City Marketing to City Branding, Towards a Theoretical Framework for Developing City Brands, Kavaratsi says, It is not the city, but the image that has to be planned. This is quite the opposite from what we hear about today in the planning world, where the discourse heavily relies on the issues at hand. 
which are land use, transportation, housing, the works. How then do we rationalize this idea of city tourism and city marketing to get things done? What does this mean for income polarization, the growing wage gap, housing and transportation injustice, and the dichotomy of image and actuality? The 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, comes up as a common example of this disconnect between image and reality, as does the disparity concerning homelessness in Tokyo, Japan, for the now-postponed 2020 Summer Olympics. Both city governments prioritize the development for city upkeep and city image at the expense of the surrounding lower-income neighborhoods. In Rio, there was a huge condo development right next to slums, without proper access to basic necessities such as clean water and electricity, and all for whose sake? For the tourists' sake. Hearing an Australian accent in Banff, as common as the peaks towering above, but not as much these days. COVID-19 travel restrictions hitting the tourism industry harder than any crisis before. A deep uncertainty hovers in the air here as businesses look forward to the season ahead. Indigenous tourism companies employ about 7,400 people and contribute $705 million to BC's economy. Most are relatively new, and the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada says they won't qualify for recently announced assistance from the federal government. Tourists end up producing 4.8 million tons of trash per year, and 14% of that is solid waste. The island of Boracay in the Philippines, the base camp at Everest in China, are some of the sites that have had to shut their doors to tourists to take care of the pileup of trash. The tourist needs to have their awareness increase, and they need to do their part. The practice is not sustainable. So, who has the power and who decides the fate of these lives of demand drops? especially now in a time like COVID-19 where there are many travel restrictions at an international scale. These concerns around city branding, the need for tourism to boost the economy, especially in developing countries, and the dichotomy of the city image versus the reality as it affects marginalized populations extends itself into many other important areas of conversation. It's interesting. It's almost like they're trying to validate pre-existing narratives and ideas of, of places. You know, when people visit certain places, they have a certain checklist of things they want to do on their itinerary and kind of photos they want to take. And it very much is just kind of living out their fantasy of that place that they wanted to visit that's on their travel bucket list. You know, people go and they expect to just see, you know, what their expectations are. They don't expect to see something new. You know, you go to Africa, they're like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to be like in the safari seeing a whole bunch of animals and stuff. They're not like they're not going in with their minds, or a lot of people aren't anyway, going in with open minds to seeing something new or seeing a different culture. They're just kind of looking to check these boxes off on their travel list and go home. With Bali, how many parts of the islands, Lebna, you were saying, resemble other cities that different people in Europe and Australia would be familiar with? And it's, you know, you want a dose of, of the island, but not really. It's not really about Bali. It's about how familiar can it be for you? You know, it's just putting it in a little package of something that you're comfortable with, but it also is a little bit exotic, but not too much. You're still comfortable and it's still familiar. Yeah, it's like, or it's like people that, that it's like you see your friend going, going to Bali or something and they're riding an elephant and they're like, okay, well, I need to go to Bali and ride an elephant. And it's like, they're not so much concerned about having a new experience as much as reliving someone else's travel experience. So I watched this one, like travel vlogger, his name is Mark Weens. 
And he like travels a lot of Asia and Southeast Asia. And he actually lives in uh, Thailand in Bangkok. He did a travel series with Pakistan. He went twice and he said he really loved Pakistan. Because of the way he was marketing the city with his videos, I thought that it was somewhere that people were backpacking and going to for food because he's a food vlogger. So he goes to see local foods and local cuisines and I thought that maybe there is like a travel culture there because prior to his videos I really didn't think that there was maybe that has to do with political unrest and like the situations in the country that adds to that but um I think it's interesting Brittany that you talk about authenticity with with regards to that because to me, it seems like really artificial, you know, like uh, some something you, you, you want to see the place in like a very contrived setting. So, for example, even for travelers to uh, Pakistan, like Lubna's talking about, you know, like the food blogger, they get like a they get like a very specific experience, like they just live in the very wealthy areas and they just like stay within those. They don't like experience life as is. When you're talking about image, when you're talking about people wanting to photograph themselves, you know, like the selfie culture, I think it's very interesting to like think about, you know, like places. So, for example, there's this place in the Austrian Austrian Alps. It's called Hallstatt. So it's a village of 800 people. They have one million tourists every year. So they've had to start roping off private property just because people in in the search for like the perfect selfie, they've started like going to people's houses on their private property. And, you know, like it's gotten a point where the government has started like reducing the number of buses that are coming to the villages. I think the yeah, like you said, the the image has a big effect on how people perceive a place as safe or not, or if it's somewhere that's desirable to go to. Like you said, maybe Pakistan has not been marketed or has not received a reputation of a place that is desirable to visit because of safety issues or people having certain ideas about culture or and people who are looking for let's like, beach resorts and a fancy, comfortable, relaxing time and they don't see going to a country in Asia or Southeast Asia as this like glorified, pampered Western idea of vacation. I think a lot of that really just depends on also, Brittany was saying in a previous episode, the sheltered idea of what you want to see when you go abroad and how to manage those expectations. And people want to dabble and people want to get involved and people want to be cultured, but to a limited perspective because they want it only in doses. It's almost like you don't want it to be too cultured, too traumatic, too far into the deep. Yeah, I think that kind of that kind of leads us into that question of how we can rationalize the idea of city tourism and uh, city marketing to bring in capital to a city while still changing the tourism industry in a way that it's not destructive and we're doing it in a positive light and it's mm-hmm. um, like preserving local cultures and artifacts and stuff. One of the things that I think of when we're talking about this is the Mayan tourism industry in Guatemala. I read an article for one of my classes. It was called the Pirates of Spirituality by Elizabeth Bell. Um, and she was kind of talking about, you know, how in Guatemala, there's kind of this, there's always been this ongoing battle between, you know, the government that's trying to bring in these like, this huge tourism industry, you know, they're running this, this whole system that's kind of tokenizing, you know, Mayan symbols and stuff and kind of just making it not something that Mayan people are proud of doing whatever they can to appeal to people coming in and not really demonstrating, you know, an authentic Mayan culture and stuff. We kind of have to talk about that and how we can change the tourism industry to be more authentic 
and mm-hmm. more representative so that we can use it to be preserving cultures as opposed mm-hmm. to destroying them and giving people the wrong impression when they're coming to visit a new country. Yeah, I think um, the whole idea of like ecotourism is now only recently taking off to draw on your point about roping off certain areas now to protect it because of, you know, tourists impacting those areas. So like I saw an article about beaches that were closed, I think, for over a year in India and in Bali because of the pollution that was left there. People are going on the beaches, leaving their takeout containers, their straws and hurting the wildlife there. And those have long-term effects on those areas, not just for the animals and for the wildlife, but for the locals who interact with that and who depend on the water ecosystem. At the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of uh, famous photos were going around of different places in the world that were clearing up. For example, the waters in Venice. It's almost like this culture now of like, like the woke traveler or like the the new wave traveler that's like eco-conscious, that backpacks and that is a minimalist. And like um, Ali said, they want to experience a local culture and they want to go into the parts of the city that people would sort of like sideline because that might not be an optimal place to visit. But that's almost turned into like this backlash because now that has become so popular that there's that these local communities now are being faced with too much traffic that they can't handle and so there is now like this sort of secrecy with like certain Mm -hmm. travel destinations or certain spots certain beaches i think i think that's a very very interesting point but maybe maybe i'm being cynical there's because of this trade-off between you know like more visitors translates into more revenue for local governments and more visitors leads to like damage of whatever site they're visiting. It kind of like leads me to believe that governments, local governments at least, they don't they don't really have a lot of incentive to change. So for example, Justin Bieber had this music video which featured like a famous canyon in Iceland. And immediately after the music video, there were like a million visitors to it. It kind of like destroyed the the canyon and the environmental agency of Iceland says it left deep scars on the vegetation and they had to close it down. But even after they closed it down, people kept going to it because they kept bribing local guards. So for example, one guard talks about how someone offered him a free trip to Dubai if he'd let him go through. And so it's interesting to see how tourism could be made more sustainable. Who really writes the histories in each context of where you go to? If you're going to a museum in, you know, in Toronto, for example, most likely there's somebody who's writing your descriptions and who's informing the information about the artifacts that are there, the art pieces that are there, is somebody who is probably writing from a Western voice. Um, I remember when I was in uh, London two years ago, I saw in one of the parks, they had a memorial dedicated to, as they said, volunteers that went and fought for them in the Caribbean and Latin America and around the world. These were not volunteers. These were people that were forced onto slave ships to, you know, fight the battle for the British. And it was just very interesting, the wording that was on the monument. Um, And I'm sure, I'm sure that's just a very simple reflection of how the narrative changes according to where you are. And many people digest that information without like really thinking about it critically because it's just presented that way, you know? Um, um, during the Black Lives Matter movement, the idea of looting. You know, a lot of people are talking against looting and why it's wrong, but who do you think filled up the museums? How do you think they were filled up? You know, a lot of the artifacts that are sacred that are being presented in museums are sacred to local cultures that are stolen artifacts. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. You know, I think that's something that's difficult for people to reconcile with. Yep. You go into a museum and you're thinking, okay, this is, I'm looking at like pieces of academia. Like this is something, this is a place that I can trust the information here I can trust, but you're not always entirely thinking about what that country and what that museum is gaining by positioning certain pieces and descriptions in a way. Coming from the Caribbean, I I consider myself to be the diaspora because now I live in Canada and I moved from the Caribbean. I don't really, yes, I'm from the Caribbean, but I don't identify with the culture as much as I would if I had lived there or grown up there for the majority of my life. And I just think there's a very far removed idea of someone who's part of the diaspora and how they see their culture and how somebody who actually lives there experiences it and it's almost this like glorified idea like you know like oh I'm from the islands and I'm like this is my story this is where I'm from and they might dismiss a lot of the struggles that people who are living there are currently experiencing or maybe I'm wrong and maybe maybe people in the islands are back home are living a better life and I just think it's interesting to talk about how that transit into the city and city tourism because I have friends who are from like for example from Bermuda which is a small island in the Caribbean lived there and grew up there and they came to UFT and came to study here as an international student for me seeing them going back home it always felt like oh like I miss like that part of myself I wish I had like a home there to go back to you know like I like if it got too cold in the winter or whatnot then I could go back and like live that life that life that I like I would have had if I didn't come here not everybody can access vacation culture or to have an escape when they need to when they need to recoup how does this reflect in terms of the service workers who are working in these countries that are high tourist spots in some ways I always thought that this translated into like a form of modern day slavery to put it I know that might be a very inflammatory statement for many people but it does mimic it in many ways if you think about who's who's really serving you and at, at your every need and the the idea of power and play and like dominance and who has the upper hand the relationships are quite transactional in many ways you can see a lot of riptide effects of systemic racism in in city branding as a reflection of that yeah, even the idea of resorts themselves it's very much stay on our property. We have everything here. It's all inclusive. Don't go to another restaurant outside. Like we don't know. We can't take care of your safety there. It's, it's very much like this little oasis and this little controlled environment, but really no connection with the island itself. It's just a landscape with people that are there to take care of you. It's not really, you know, a cultural experience. Some people do go off, but even if you do, it's a tour organized by the resort. It's, it's very much to maintain that image as a safe, luxurious oasis, a place where you can relax away from your hectic life a world away. And it's almost like just walking into a postcard. People just want to recreate that idea. They don't necessarily care about the authenticity of that experience or kind of what's happening um, to the island after they leave. I know, for example, when I was in Singapore, there it's a very it's a place that is very glorified because of how much of a planning mecca it is. You know, it has a lot of green infrastructure. Um, it is beautiful. It is aesthetically pleasing. It's one of the places with the highest GDP per capita in the world. And it is sort of like a travel destination. When I went there, I spoke to a lot of the workers who like were helping me out if it was, you know, my taxi driver or server or whatever it may have been. And a lot of them talked about the income disparity problem and the income polarization problem there. 
especially the issue with migrant workers who go to Singapore that cannot afford to live there. I think it's very interesting that you talk about migrant workers in Singapore and why we're talking about inequality and COVID is on everyone's mind. I th- mm-hmm. When when you look at COVID response for Singapore, it has it has largely been successful for like everyone except migrant workers. Yes. So the fourth wave for coronavirus for Singapore was especially was was driven largely by increases in cases in migrant workers because you had twelve to twenty people per room in dormitories, mm-hmm. which made social distancing incredibly difficult. You know, I mean, it's obvious we have twelve to twenty people per room. And it's going to be really hard to social, socially distance. And so there's naturally disproportionate number of COVID cases in this segment of the population. I think it's very interesting how, you know, like there's like this disparity between the image that is presented to the rest of the world is what's actually happening on the ground. In Bermuda, there's actually no minimum wage in place. And a lot of the migrant workers in Bermuda come from the Philippines and uh, from Indonesia and I think from Pakistan and India as well. It's interesting to see how they are sidelined both economically and socially. And so like you said, in Singapore, where there are 10 to 12 people living in one dormitory, it's the same in Bermuda. And a lot of the times um, they're making anywhere between five to eight U.S. dollars an hour. And that's like a normal that's considered normal for them. And Bermuda is a place where people are making like you know, there are many millionaires or people who are making lots of money and living well and comfortably there, like a lot of expats. Um, there aren't any any measures in place for the protection of these people. And many times migrant workers are people of color. And it just seems like the cycle continues to repeat itself. Virginia, do you want to talk a bit more about volunteerism? Yeah. So volunteerism is kind of the idea where you travel, but it's with an altruistic motive in mind, where you would go, you would, you know, build a school, build a community center, something of that sort. But it's often young people uh, who really aren't involved in the building because they don't have any sort of skills or expertise in that area. And then when you build those spaces, who are they for? It's very much for the people that are volunteering to have a feel-good experience and less for the communities that they're actually intending to serve. It's something that has come under a lot of controversy recently as people have looked more critically at it and seen the long-lasting impacts and the relationships of dependency that kind of perpetuate that western white savior complex because it just echoes you know that that colonial relationship of dependence and disparity so then let me raise an interesting question then. Do you think there is a potential benefit that outweighs like this cost of marginalization? Or do you think that the cycle of inequality just should continue to repeat itself or it will continue to repeat itself? Like, is there a solution that's viable? I think that traveling with local companies instead of big, you know, conglomerates that don't necessarily care about the local impacts and that employ local people in higher up positions as well, not just entry level positions that are easily replaced, giving them kind of a leadership role within the work that they're doing on on the ground. And being conscious about where you're putting your money and where you're staying and what kind of interests you're supporting. 
So looking at is less of a transactional relationship, whereas you're paying for a service, you take your photos, you go on your tour Mm -hmm. and you kind of leave. But thinking, you know, am I negatively impacting the environment when I'm swimming with my sunscreen in this coral reef? Or am I, you know, littering on the ground that no one will pick up, but I know it's not me, so that's okay. So really kind of looking in... And a lot of different resorts and stuff as well, they don't necessarily have legislation mm-hmm. in place where the sanitation doesn't negatively impact the environment. So sometimes the the waste is, is running off into a neighboring area that's not very affluent and they don't necessarily have the power to stop that from happening you know, is there a minimum wage in place in the, in the country you're staying at? How are they supporting the people that are working there? Some places, like even different resorts, they'll be, they're mm. often chains and you'll see the people in leadership positions often at the front desk. Sometimes they're not even from that country. You know, they're, they're British or American or Dutch or whatever. And they clearly will just move on to another location. But then who, you know, is serving you drinks at the bar? Who is cleaning your room? They're not white Western people from abroad. They're the locals. So it is kind of going into that question that Lovna raised before. Is this a new iteration of slavery? Is this a new relationship of inferiority and superiority and using that power to the visitor's benefit? Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that what's most important when you're traveling is doing your research and making sure that you do enough research before you go so that you can have an authentic and positive experience. I think that's what stops a lot of people from making those choices is they don't want to put in the work beforehand. They'd rather just go to a resort where they feel safe as opposed to actually like researching like where they should go and how to navigate the spaces and what's safe and what's not. But I think that that is how you can navigate this tourism industry and how you can make a positive impact when you go to another country. And I think it's definitely worth doing that and putting in the extra effort just to avoid having those negative impacts. Yeah, and I think a bunch of popular tourist destinations have started doing, uh, have started taking this cost-benefit analysis like more seriously, and they've started instituting caps on tourism population. And I mean, just, just thinking about, you know, like who who gets the benefit out of tourism um, there's there have been a bunch of studies about income inequality and how tourism just like increases it so prominently Sam Salalam and Sutsarshan Paramiti in 2016 did an analysis where they used panel set data from 1991 to 2012 on 49 developing countries so it's pretty expensive um, and they find that tourism does increase income inequality in developing countries and um, a further analysis by Wen and Tisdale, it kind of like takes it a step further and they kind of like think about, they, they disaggregate the impact further and they find that it's also increasing regional inequality between various provinces. So I think it's like very important for tourist destinations to to consider these questions. And I think it's like, it's, it's, it's more, it's more, of an important issue for for those tourist destinations which derive a large portion of their income from tourism. Those were some really interesting facts that you raised. And I think it just sort of like solidifies everything that we've been talking about. You know, it's it's almost like the stats don't surprise you at this point, you know, like those numbers are almost always a fact of discussion, not even just talking about tourism, but 
in so many other examples of life, marginalized people are people of color and they just continue to be marginalized in so many other examples becomes like draining and exhausting to hear the same thing again and again but for people who live it and who know it it's almost like screaming into the void you know like listen to us we've been saying this for so long and now what else can we do for you to hear that this is the fact and this is the reality but like Brittany said I think a lot of it comes from being conscious with your dollar like that's a great way to start these communities are dependent on tourism and so you still want to make sure that you are helping to honor them in that way so that they can thrive but maybe be conscious with how it is that you're contributing to the problem and how it is that you are fueling this relationship that is you know in many ways dependent for places like bali where 80 percent of their income is tourism driven so like the whole issue with the bangladeshi factory workers and you know mass producing at a rate where you're taking away business from somebody who is local and ex- outsourcing that income to you know underpay and put women um, and marginalized folks in poor working conditions in a country in the global south and you need to, we need to think about those impacts when you make those purchasing choices Search up the Fashion Transparency Index. It's a great way to start thinking about how to be conscious with your money, especially when it comes to affecting communities are dependent on outsourcing labor. Um, And a document that's put together by Fashion Revolution, and they they have a list, an index of all a ton of different brands, over 200 brands, I believe, that um, you can check and see that you purchased from. So thank you so much for listening today. Um, I hope you learned something new and you found the discussion engaging. Thanks so much, guys. Bye now. Bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cities Unmasked with Lumna Ali, Victoria McCutcheon, Elise Sajid, and Brittany Livingston. If you like our show and want to know more, please check out our Instagram page at Cities Unmasked. Or leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. A special thank you goes out to the University of Toronto School of Cities.